Welcome. You are about to enter the Door to Eternity podcast with your host, Jesse Carter, who provides you with a rare viewpoint of end times prophecy explained by a normal everyday guy who guides you down a simple roadmap toward taking advantage of your eternal destiny. You're standing at your door to eternity. So come on in and join us. Welcome to another episode of DoorToEternity.com. I'm your host, Jesse Carter, and I'm glad that you're here with me. We're going to be talking today, continuing our discussion in the book of Revelation as a part of the Holy Scriptures. And I'll be reading that to you today, as I announced last episode, episode nine, is that when you read this, you get a blessing actually from God. Also, if you hear it, you get a blessing from God. So it's the only book in the Bible that states that. So we're going to continue reading, and I will try my best to interpret. Again, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a theologian who's trained for four to six to eight years or all their life, but I am a scripture reader. I have been studying prophecy and learning about prophecy since the 70s, as I may have mentioned one before, once before, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth was one of the first books I read, but also Dr. Jack Van Empey's 1159 and Counting. That was the name of the book, 1159 and Counting, as in 1159, you know, like the doomsday clock. Uh, guys, it's, you know, it's right on the verge of eternity. This is about eternity, and as we've discussed on previous episodes, the actual door to eternity is none other than Jesus Christ himself, as often referred to in the scriptures. So he's your entranceway to eternity in the good way. Now, there's an eternity in a bad way. Most people refer to it as hell. You can refer to it in all sorts of ways. I tend to think, as a scientist, I'm a geologist, but as a scientist and what we've learned about the heavens, they talk about in this Bible the Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown into the bottomless pit along with Satan. And I think the bottomless pit may be, it's just my opinion, may be a wormhole or a gravity hole or black hole, dark matter, whatever you call it, because once you go into that, there you can't escape it. You just can't. There's just too much gravity. It pulls at you, continues to pull you down. You'll never get out. You'll never come out of it. And so that's what I think that perhaps they will go into. Now, we'll non-believers, meaning people that don't believe in Jesus Christ as the door to eternity, will they go into one of these black holes? I don't know. Just know from what the scripture talks about, the bottomless pit, and in my imagination, that's what a black hole is, based on the science that I've learned and is out there amongst us. But either way, it's black, there's no light getting in there, and Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the light of the universe. And so he sheds a light on the darkness. That is the difference there. So there will be no light in those black holes, as far as I've read. Anyway, so let's get on with chapter 
1, we're still in chapter 1, and I'm going to start with verse 11. We concluded with verse 10 last time. Now, let me ask that you refer your friends, your family, your relatives to this and start from episode 9. That's the start of this. Now, of course, you can go back and read for yourself and get the blessing. But if you want to hear it, then start from episode 9, and that's where we start from. Now, I'm reading a great translation of the Bible. It's called the Prophecy Study Bible and compiled by Tim LaHaye, and it's the King James Version. So that's what I'm reading from. And folks, you'll get a lot of tips and resources. There'll be a lot of things in the side note that talks about it and what it refers to. So you don't have to be a genius to follow along with me. If you've got that version of the Bible, I think it's on all of the online bookstores. You can get that. Again, that is the Tim LaHaye, who compiled it, Prophecy Study Bible. Pretty much explains everything in the side notes. So verse 11, this is, uh, and I'm gonna, it's in red, by the way. Red is when Jesus talks. So this verse 11 starts off by, actually, I'll quote the scripture, and then I'll double quote when Jesus talks. I didn't do that on verse 8 when Jesus said, quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, end quote. So I'm going to try to do that from now on so that you know who exactly is talking. It's either Jesus or it's John writing it down for us to read. And John, the disciple, of course. So verse 11, quote, saying, double quote, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea, double end quote. Continuing on in verse 12, quote, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks are like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the foot, and girt, about the paps, with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. End quote. That was the end of verse 16, chapter 1. Now, I want to stop there. You know who he's describing. John is writing down what he is seeing. It is a person of such magnitude that we can only come to the conclusion that it is Jesus Christ in his deity form as God. 
of course. And you see this right off the bat. And a lot of times people, they know Jesus is Jewish, right? But there's a lot of cults. There's a lot of cultures, a lot of races, if you will, that like to portray Jesus along with how they look. Well, he looks like nobody else, of course, and he will have his features, his facial features and such, like he had when he was on this earth as he was nailed to the cross. And afterwards, as he appeared to many disciples and apostles and others. So he will have his same features. Everything will be like that. He'll see the nail scars in his hands and his feet. You'll probably see the piercing in his side if he lets you see it. But here we see his glorification. We see him as he truly is. It's beyond what humans can comprehend. And I'd probably expect John wrote down the best he could see when he sees, says that his, um, his feet are like brass, fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Well, that tells, tells you that it's just smoking hot, white, and like the sun. So we see Jesus, who he is, and his hair is gleaming white. And white, of course, wisdom beyond everybody talks about white hair being wisdom. Well, I don't want white hair at this point in my life. Uh, I don't mind others having it. Sometimes it looks good on them, but I don't want to have it right now. I want to look younger, and I'm getting older, of course. I don't mind the wisdom aspect of it. I hope that I will get some wisdom from God, especially by reading the Bible and learning what he has to offer. But this just gives you an idea of who he is. I want you to understand, now this is beyond anything we could comprehend, of course. There is a book by Gene Edwards. It's called The Divine Romance. It gives a picture of a little bit about Jesus based on the scripture and who he is. And it's a fiction, of course, but it gives you an idea of Jesus and why he created mankind and how the angels were there in the past and so forth. So it's really a love story. And it tries to emulate this picture of Jesus in a way, but it's hard to fathom. And we're going to look at it even further. Now, the one thing I wanted to point out, he said he had in his hand seven stars. Well, seven stars, meaning these seven churches that we're going to be talking about here today. And also he had a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, the two-edged sword is the truth. It's God's word. And when you warp that truth or you try to change it as the devil will do and as non-believers will do, evil people actually will try to do, Jesus cuts it both ways. He's a sword with an edge on both sides. You're not going to be able to escape and get the blunt end from what you've said or done or treated other people. It's going to cut both ways. It's going to cut through your soul. You know, not literally, because your soul's going to live forever. Your your spirit's going to live forever, that is. So it's not going to cut through you, but literally. But it will sever perhaps your ties from God himself. You are sent to eternal damnation. And I don't say that lightly. I hope nobody does. But we know that's the truth. We know that some people will reject Jesus as the door to eternity. 
to the point where they have chosen their own path for eternity. And I hope that's not you. If you haven't gotten yourself right with God, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's cut and dry, plain and simple. The scriptures talk about it. Jesus has spoken about it, and he's given you the sound advice, you know, using that two-edged sword, so to speak. He's given you wisdom and truth all at the same time. So you need to take advantage of that and come to grips with your eternity and accept Christ. He will forgive you of your sins. He's faithful to that, and he will take on your sins upon himself so that you look blameless before a holy God. That's what this is all about, folks. We can't change God's nature. God is not going to wink at something that he is not. He is holy. He is righteous. He has a standard. He has set up the universe and all of creation upon his foundation of truth and justice, if you will, and he will not deter from it. And if he did, then Satan would be able to say, oh, see, you're really not the one in true God. You're, you're some, there's a flaw in you. So a lot of times people say, how can God let this happen? If he's such a good and holy God, how can he let these atrocities happen? Well, we first know that it's not him doing it. It's evil human beings or flawed human beings doing things they should not do. And he allows this on many levels, mainly for us to get experience, for us to understand what we're doing is wrong and be able to correct ourselves, to love others who all fall short of a perfect life. And we should all do that, to all expect the best from people because we know that we have fallen short and so forth and so on. So I don't want get in God's head, but we know from Scripture that he allows things to happen to good people. Look at Job. If you read the book of Job, you'll understand this. He allowed Job to be tested, and we are all being tested. As I talked about in a previous episode, we are being refined like fine gold. You know, gold comes out of the ground dirty, and it needs to be refined. It needs to be chopped up. It needs to be crushed. It needs to be put in the hottest fire you can imagine so that it can pull out the impurities, the dross, so to speak. And then you do it again. You put it through another test. You put it through another refinement. And on and on it goes until you have the purest form of gold or silver or whatever type of metal. But let's just say gold. And as a geologist, I can tell you that's the process. So God is refining you to be like purest, finest gold so that you can be at the very best of your eternal existence. Now, it's up to us to continue to seek that path. It's hard sometimes. We're being tried and tested by people that don't have our best interests at heart. Just know that God does love you. God does want the best, and you have to accept that And don't shake your fist at God like, how can you let this happen to me? No, step back and do the glass half full type of looking at your life and saying, well, God has put me through this so that I can help others. So that's 
how you should look at things and that God is putting you through these trials or allowing it to happen. Not that he's wanting it to happen, but he's allowing it so that you can be refined even more. And then, of course, once we get to heaven, we will see and we will understand to what extent God went on our behalf to help us see that path. So right now you're on that path. You need to go through that door to eternity. Don't listen to some of these people in public life who say there are many gods or many paths to God. So here we are. We're about to get into verse 17. Jesus is going to start talking here in a minute. Keep in mind that Jesus had in his right hand these seven stars, and he probably selected these certain churches in the growing Christian movement at the time of John talking about this. There were actually Christians meeting in each one of these cities, and he probably brought them up because they had their own unique flaws. And throughout history, you will see that there some scholars assign each church to a certain period of Christian endeavor, meaning, you know, the first church mentioned here would have been the first few centuries over the last 2000 years since Jesus has been gone up until the time he will reappear. And then after that, the next church could be the next few hundred years. I don't pretend to be a scholar to know exactly when those years started and ended, but you get the gist of it. They lasted for decades, if not hundreds of years each, but they are also indicative of this day and age where you can find all seven of these types of Christian churches in this modern day and age. So it's kind of a dual double-edged sword, if you will. That kind of gives you an idea a little bit more about what's going on. So verse 17 starts, quote, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, double quote, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Double quote end. That's the end of the chapter one, but I do want to go back over this where he says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. A lot of times Jesus talks about he is in the past, he is in the present, and he is in the future. Okay. That's kind of the, what he's talking about there. And so he's given you once again, that he's eternal, he was from the beginning, he is present, and he is in the future. And so he's talking about that, alluding to himself, but also about the times that he has set up. But he talks about that, I am alive forevermore. And the word amen 
from what I've always read, means in the English language, so be it, meaning it is done. I've said it. I mean it. That's the end of the discussion. Here it is. You know, you can take it in. But amen, so be it, meaning that's there is no recourse. <laughs> that's, that's the end. And he pointed out the seven stars, of course, and the seven candlesticks. But you'll see that number seven quite a lot in this book. And it means completion, of course, like the seven days of creation. The seventh day, of course, as mentioned in the book of Genesis, is the day that God rested, meaning it was complete. He had done all the work on the first six days. So seven, you'll see, is quite a bit in this discussion here. Now, let me point out some things that some scholars, and you'll see this in the book that I'm referring to or have referred to. The seven basic periods or stages, if you will, I'm going to read what it says here because Tim LaHaye is a scholar. He's the one that compiled this along with some others, and he knows about this more than I would ever, so I'm going to just kind of give you a brief overview. The church of Ephesus was called the Apostolic Church, and it went from the day of Pentecost to A.D. 100, so a very short time frame there. That was the day days of the apostles, meaning those that had come after the disciples, and they were preaching the Word of God, and they were moving with the Spirit. Of course, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon many, and they were empowered to go out and preach the gospel. So they are very on fire, if you will. Then the church of Smyrna, they were the persecuted church. And that was from A.D. 100 to about 316, it says. And the persecuted church, of course, meaning Satan and the devil and his group started figuring out, boy, these guys are spreading the word. If we don't stop them now, we need to kill them. We need to stop what they're doing. And we don't want them preaching that gospel, leading people to Jesus and to God. So that's where they were persecuted. And that went on, you know, through that period of time. Now, the next church is Pergamos, and that's the world church. They really started gaining ground. People started noticing. They became a world power to some extent, and that was A.D. 316 through about 800. Then you had Thyatira, and that was the medieval church, and they were undergoing some real testing. If you read some falsehoods, they were had some people sneaking into the church, spreading bad testimony and trying to destroy the church from within, from everything I've read. And that was from 800 A.D. to about 1517. Then the Church of Sardis was the rise of the state church, and that's before the Protestant Reformation when they started consolidating their power throughout the world and kings had to bow down to and get their permission from the official church at the time. And that was from A.D. 1517 through 1750. And yes, there were a lot of atrocities that happened, a lot of martyrs killed for actually preaching the truth. It's a shame. It's a stain on the the church at the time. And many non-Christians will use that as a way. See, you people are just as flawed as anybody else. In fact, you're worse than anybody else as a Christian because you killed good and decent people. Well, 
I will state that it probably wasn't good and decent people who was running the church at the time either. Probably bad people, actually, and maybe even evil people. So, or ignorant people, if you will. So then became the Church of Philadelphia, and that was the missionary church. And that was around the year of 1750 to around 1900. And I know from reading about this time period, uh, the gospel spread throughout the whole world from mostly the British Empire and their former colonies, meaning the British sent a lot of people, missionaries that is, to China, India, places in, you know, South America, throughout the world actually. American churches picked up the cause and they did a lot of missionary trips and they led the cause to reaching the world with the gospel for Christ and it really spread and there was a heartfelt need to tell others about Jesus, to warn them that if you didn't accept Jesus, that you would go to another place that you wouldn't like. So that's a historical reference. We know that happened. That happened all over the place. So let's look at the seventh one, and that is the Church of Laodicea, and that is the apostate church. So that is happening from about A.D. 1900 to this present time. And we'll read in Revelation that the Christian church will still be on earth, but will be gone when there is a complete falling away of the gospel. Falling away meaning apostasy. So that's where that apostate church comes into play. They will have a complete falling away. You'll have Christian leaders that say, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. He's not the only way to eternity. There are many paths to God. In fact, believe it or not, we know that God has a male persona. Nothing against females. It's just how he is portrayed in the scriptures. And, of course, he created man in his own image. No, not women and men. He created man, which was, of course, Adam at the very onset in his image. Now, not just his physical image, but in his thinking and his way of moving and his thought process and the way he looked at things, even down to the nature of himself, meaning he is able to laugh and to cry and discern and ponder All of these things were based on God, and God created man in his image. Of course, after that, man got depressed, got lonely, because he saw all of the other animals had a mate. And so that's when God created woman out of his side to be at his equal side. And you'll see this in the Judeo-Christian mindset in that women were elevated not just by Jesus, but but by others. So women became just as important in the Christian mindset as they were in the Jewish mindset at the time. No other society, no other groups of people really have portrayed their equality of women with men in in that sense. Now we know if we study scripture a little bit more, it does state that the male in a marriage is the head of the household, 
And God puts a heavy burden on the man to be the spiritual head of his household. And if he neglects that, then the family suffers the consequences. Now, we see this as a reflection of what Jesus is as the head of the church, the head of the heavenly marriage, the head of the church. The Christians are the bride of Christ. Our bodies and our time here on this earth will reflect on what the eternal really is. And so a marriage between a man and a woman kind of reflects on how our eternal sense will be with our Creator. We won't be more important than Jesus, but we will be co-heirs sharing in just about as much as importance as we can share. Of course, we won't have his powers. We won't have his knowledge. We won't have his eternity being before the foundations of the earth or anything was created to when everything ceases, he will still be here. So it's a reflection. Just keep that in mind. That's what this Bible is all about. That's what scriptures is all about. It's, it helps us human beings. We're not at the point where we can fully understand. We are a babe in the womb, so to speak. Of course, babes in the womb don't understand what is outside of the womb until they are born into it. So that's why we have to read the scripture and we have to hear others talk about it and learn. So that kind of gives you an idea about what we're reading about here, the seven churches. And we're about to get into that, starting with chapter two. Now you will see, let me just set this up for you. You will see God's comments or Jesus's comments about each of these churches. He's going to comment what he likes. He's going to comment what he doesn't like. One in particular is Laodicea. That's where judgment comes. And that's, of course, the end of the time, end of the age, where that's the last church, of course, right? Judgment will come, and it will be on that church. So with that said, God bless you. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you on the next time, episode 11.